And if you haven't already, please turn in your Bible to Psalm 82. Psalm 82. And let us pray. Oh, Father, we would ask that you might speak to us, that you might take your word by your spirit this morning, and that you would shine your light into our hearts, that you would show us your heart, and that you would change ours, so that we might become more like Jesus in every way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a friend named Mark Laberton. We studied together at Cambridge, and, and for many years he pastored the first Presbyterian church in Berkeley, California. Now he happens to be the president of Fuller Seminary. But while he was the pastor in Berkeley, one Sunday he was preaching on Psalm 27, the, the same psalm that I preached on a few weeks back. The, the one that begins, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And in his sermon, Mark did what good preachers do. He related these words to the fears of the people in his congregation. The fear of losing a secure job or, or a significant career. The, the fear of broken health or a dying loved one. I mean, real fears. And his sermon was well received by his people. But the following week, something happened. Mark attended a banquet sponsored by the International Justice Mission, a mission focused on defending the weak, the poor, and the oppressed. And at that banquet, a young woman of Asian descent shared her personal testimony. Her name was Elizabeth. And when I hear that name, Elizabeth, it makes me think about my own daughter, Sarah Elizabeth, or my own granddaughter, Naomi Elizabeth. Well, this young woman named Elizabeth had been raised in a poor Christian family in her country, but, but her family had taught her the scripture from the earliest of days. But, but as a young teenager, she was abducted and forced into sexual slavery. Now, I'll spare you the details. But, but as my friend Mark listened to Elizabeth's story, the, the story of her abuse and eventual rescue, he, he was pierced to the heart at one particular point. Elizabeth ha had written a scripture verse above the bed in the windowless room where she suffered her abuse. It was Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now this story is recorded in a book my friend later wrote, which is entitled rather strangely, The Dangerous Act of Worship. And now you know where the title of my sermon came from. But, but you and I don't tend to think of worship as a dangerous act, do we? As something we should approach with a sense of fear and trepidation. And yet according to sacred scripture, worship is often 
a dangerous act. I mean, when the children of Israel stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and watched the cloud of glory, God's glory descend upon it, as they heard the thunder roll and saw the lightning strike, as God began to speak his Ten Commandments, that they drew back in fear. And when the, when the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple, and, and when he felt that threshold shake as if in an earthquake, he heard those fiery seraphim cry, holy, holy, holy. He, he was undone. And when the apostle John saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, with his face shining like the sun in all its glory. The book of Revelation says he fell at his feet as if dead until Jesus said to him, do not be afraid. I mean, make no mistake. Worship can be a dangerous thing because worship at its heart is coming face to face with the living God. And coming face to face with God through his word and spirit changes things. It changes the way we think. It, it changes the way we feel. It changes how we look at ourselves and at our world. I mean, it changes who we are. And therefore, it changes what we do. But maybe you're wondering, what does this have to do with poor Elizabeth? And that psalm scribbled over her head in that windowless room of abuse. Well, I, I think Psalm 82 has the answer. Now, Psalm 82, if you happen to notice, began rather abruptly. It ushered the listener into a scene that was already playing, presumably in heaven. God is presiding in the great assembly. Literally, the Hebrew suggests that he's taking his stand. And in the midst of the gods, it says, he pronounces judgment. And if we were paying attention at that point, we're puzzled. I mean, who are these gods who surround this throne of judgment? I mean, they could hardly be literal gods. Because scripture is clear, there is only one God. So some commentators have suggested that these Elohim, that's, that's the Hebrew word, these Elohim must be angels, principalities and powers appointed by God to do his bidding. And there is biblical precedent for that interpretation. In Psalm 8, for example, where David declares that we human beings have been made a little lower than the Elohim. And that's normally translated heavenly beings or, or angels. So these, these Elohim, these gods, could be the heavenly host of angels. Even the fallen angels that, that God is now calling to account. Or they could be, oddly enough, human beings. Because in the book of Exodus, there are at least two places where the word Elohim is used to describe appearing before the judges of Israel, appearing before men who have been appointed by God to judge others in his name. So, so which is it? Are they angelic powers in heaven? Or are they rulers on this earth? Well, I'm, I'm not sure 
we have enough information to decide. But I, I actually don't think we need to decide. Because even if God is speaking to a gathering of heavenly beings in, in the great assembly of heaven, what he has to say in this psalm speaks directly to you and me on this earth. And here's what he says. Verse 2. How long? How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? I mean, perhaps you remember Psalm 13. The, the psalmist cries, How long, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and have unceasing sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? I mean, Psalm 13 is the, the mournful cry of a wounded child of God who cannot understand how a good and all-powerful Father in heaven lets him suffer so long without making things right. Well, in Psalm 82, it's as if God himself rises to his feet in the company of heaven, and he takes the cry of the oppressed on his own lips, and he says to angels and men alike, defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And, and you know, as I, as I read Psalm 82 and I hear God standing up and saying those words, I, I get the sense that God may be angry. I mean, he's not yet commanding his angels to unleash his wrath on the earth, which he will do at the end of time, according to the book of Revelation. But, but in this psalm, God is clearly issuing a warning. And what is it that arouses God's wrath and his warning of a coming judgment? Well, the abuse of Elizabeth on her bed of violence. That's what. In fact, any injustice, any oppression, any violent aggression or financial exploitation, I mean, any misuse or abuse of one people or one person by another makes the sovereign Lord of creation angry enough to rise up and judge. But not just that. God's also angry when the rest of us turn a blind eye. When we fail to defend the weak, when others are taking advantage of them. When we fail to rescue those who are suffering, even from the injustice of others. When we fail to care for the poor and needy, even if we aren't the ones who are making them poor and needy. You see, it's not just acts of injustice which God condemns by his words in Psalm 82, but it's also and especially the failure of people like us to fight against those injustices and to help those who suffer those injustices. See, it's, it's the sin of the priest and the Levite 
in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. The the sin of crossing over on the other side. And so we don't see and we don't do anything. Defend. Rescue. Deliver. That's what God commands in verse 4. And then comes verse 5. And we don't know for sure who they are in verse 5 of Psalm 82. I mean, they know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. I mean, it could be the weak and needy, the the poor and oppressed who, who walk in darkness because there's no justice in the land and there's no one shining a light on injustice. Or this could be a description of the oppressors. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their hearts are dark. They walk in darkness and they create a world of darkness for others. But either way, the final phrase of verse 5 is alarmingly clear. The very foundations of the earth are shaken when the poor and oppressed are not protected and helped. I mean, failure to defend the weak, to to care for the poor, to to rescue the oppressed, God is saying, threatens the very foundations of God's good world and every human community in it. Why? Because justice and mercy are the bedrock and the deep, rich, fertile soil in which every human community can flourish. And who? Who is supposed to defend the weak and care for the poor? I mean, who who is responsible for justice and mercy in this world? At least, who is God holding responsible in this psalm? Well, verse 6. I said you are God's. Elohim. You are all sons of the Most High. Now, whoever the gods, the Elohim, are in verse 1, in verse 6, they're described as sons of the Most High. And in the day in which this psalm was written, it's my opinion that these sons of the Most High were probably the princes and the rulers and the priests of God's people. Because they were the ones who were responsible, primarily responsible for maintaining justice in their society. But who are the sons and daughters of the Most High in our day? Are they not the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ? I mean, is it not you? Is it not me? I mean, isn't this word being spoken to us? And please don't forget that Psalm 82 is a worship song, a hymn prayed in the company of God's people, a prayer sung in a service of worship like we are experiencing today. And perhaps that strikes you as a little surprising. It did me. I mean, it's not the kind of song we we tend to sing in our worship services, is it? I've I've never actually heard this song set to music. But this song would not have felt out of place 
to the ancient people of God. Because the ancient people of God were rescued slaves. They had, sur they had suffered hundreds of years of oppression in the land of Egypt, which means they had more in common with African-American slaves than with the Christian nation that oppressed them. So wherever you turn in Old Testament law, you will find verses like Exodus 23, 9, which says, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be aliens. And as, as the Ten Commandments, the Magna Carta of the Hebrew people declares, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's how the Ten Commandments begin. And the implication is, don't you ever forget it. And don't you ever treat anyone else like that. So obey these commands. So when Isaiah that prophet who saw the Lord high and lifted up. When Isaiah collected his prophecies in a book, this is the one he put in the first chapter. The multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have no pleasure in the blood of your bulls. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your religious assemblies. They have become a burden to me. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Why? Why was the worship of God, why has the worship of God's people become detestable to God? Well, we learn in this prophecy, stop doing wrong, God says. Learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the defenseless widow. You, you see, true worship, the, the kind of worship that God accepts and takes pleasure in, he is inseparable from human justice. True and undefiled religion that the brother of Jesus once declared, that the kind that God accepts, he is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unspotted from the world. Do you see? I mean, to encounter God in worship, to genuinely encounter him, it is to hear his voice. It's to be seen by him in the light of his piercing gaze. It's to actually be close enough to him to sense the beating of his heart. A heart that beats with holy love for the poor and needy, for the defenseless and the weak. See, true worship doesn't just lift us up. It opens us up so that God can change us deep within. And as God changes us deep within, true worship sends us out into the world transformed by the mercy and justice of God. So transformed that when we hear Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Well, we don't just think about ourselves and our families and our fears. 
But we think about the Elizabeths in this world, about fatherless young women and men who wander in darkness and need a great light. We think about God's mercy and justice for all, and we are moved by God's mercy to find others who needs God's mercy and his justice. And we do whatever we can do to give it to them. You know, I am deeply encouraged and I am regularly convicted by the members of this church who understand and experience what true worship is. I mean, scores of you gather weekly at TNO Thursday night outreach to befriend the homeless. I mean, to feed them, yes, but more importantly, to talk with them, to to take them on retreats, to, to take them into your life as you enter into theirs. And I I know others of you who provide scholarships for young men and women to attend schools like Boston Trinity Academy. Scholarships which have literally transformed the lives of these young people. Others of you visit men and women in prison. You care for the disabled or or like my mom and dad, your foster parents who who literally save children's lives. I mean, time, time does not allow for me to talk about all the ministries of justice and compassion engaged in by the members of this church. I mean, Pat and Tammy McLeod's Mamelodi Initiative in the slums of South Africa. The the maze and the Prada's work in the prisons of Johannesburg. ESL's regular ministry to the internationals in our midst. And it's, it's the hope and the prayer of this church that ministries like this will multiply through the years ahead as we focus more and more on the One Mile Initiative. But, but it's not just in special ministries that, that we do the work of justice. I mean, for most of us, our workplace is the primary place where we work for justice in God's world where we stand up for honesty and integrity, where we advocate for fairness and justice, where we foster human flourishing by by promoting that which is good and beautiful and true. In my reading this week, I, I came across a paragraph from my favorite pastor, Eugene Peterson. This is what he said. The test of our work is not the profit we gain from it, or the status we receive from it, but its effects in creation. Are persons impoverished? Is the land diminished? Is society defrauded? Is the world less or more because of our work? God gives us work, not to further our ambition or feather our nest, but to deepen creation and sanctify society. In the words of Micah 6, to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. No work can be reduced to what we do for a living. All work is participation in the divine work. Or so it should be. I mean, what what is 
the purpose of the church? Well, what is the purpose of the Christian life? I mean, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that is profoundly true. But my question is, how do we do that? How do we glorify God on this earth at this time? Well, I would like to suggest to you that we do it by becoming like Jesus. And that... That is the purpose of the Christian life. To, to be transformed into the likeness of God's Son through the work of His indwelling Spirit so that we can become true image bearers of God as we were created to be and so that we can do the work in this world that we were created to do. And becoming like Jesus is also the purpose of the church. See, that's why we're called the body of Christ. So through the work of Christ's Spirit in each and every one of us, we're, we're to help each other become like Christ so that together we can manifest the truth and the life of Christ in this world. See, becoming like Jesus is the purpose of this church and every Christian, every little Christ one in it. So think for a moment about Jesus. I mean, Jesus was always defending the weak, helping the poor, rescuing the lost. <laughs> I mean, he himself was poor and oppressed and criminalized. I mean, remember the way Jesus protected that young woman caught in adultery from an angry mob? I mean, think about that woman at the well, an outcast from her own village, a Samaritan. But Jesus crossed every social boundary to show her mercy. Jesus would reach out and touch unclean and ostracized lepers, healing them so that he could restore them to their community. I mean, Jesus once stopped a funeral procession. <laughs> Imagine that standing up and stopping a funeral procession so he can raise the young man from the dead and give this widow back her only son who was her only means of support and hope in life. I mean, Jesus healed a woman with an embarrassing flow of blood who, the Bible said, had suffered much at the hands of many doctors. And he restored her dignity. I mean, Jesus made a tax collector a pariah, his disciple. And then he taught the rest of his men, including the zealots who hated tax collectors, how to love this man and to heal the divisions between them. I mean, do you see that Jesus didn't just preach a gospel of merciful justice and redeeming grace? He, he lived it. He embodied it. That's the meaning of the incarnation. He incarnated this reality. And at the very beginning of his ministry, in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus took a stand in the synagogue among the rulers of his people. And you're supposed to hear echoes of Psalm 82. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news 
That's the word for gospel. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which probably refers to the year of Jubilee, a year of great economic liberation. I mean, you can't be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, without becoming like Jesus. And you can't become like Jesus without following Jesus into the world. And you can't follow Jesus in the world without defending the weak. Rescuing the needy, maintaining the rights of the poor and the oppressed without loving mercy, practicing justice, and walking humbly with our God. In a moment, we will participate in the most sacred of all our acts of worship. Together we will receive in faith the body and the blood of our crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And may I suggest that this act of worship is meant to be a dangerous act? Because we cannot receive his body given or his blood shed without renewing our commitment to taking up our cross and following him to becoming like Jesus and like Jesus, following him into the world. They, They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are being shaken. I mean, is that not a description of the world in our day? Well, then God says, rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked one. Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Because true worship does not just lift us up. It sends us out to become like Jesus and follow Jesus into the world on behalf of the justice and the mercy of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, open our eyes to you first, to who you are as revealed in your Son, and who are we are to be as embodied in your Son. And then open our eyes to the world around us. Make us like Jesus. Fill us with your Spirit, not primarily for our benefit, but for the sake of your world. In Jesus' name, amen.